The Bible is a book full of unsolved mysteries. Are you looking to finally make sense of it all? Join our weekly conversation and think about the Bible like you never have before. Listen, watch, and interact with us at ChristianQuestions.com. You're listening to Christian Questions. Here's Rick and Jonathan. James Altucher once said, Honesty is the fastest way to prevent a mistake from turning into a failure. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. And I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Folks, we thank you for joining us today. This is a contact-friendly format. We welcome your thoughts via email, messaging us at our ChristianQuestions.com, Facebook, and our website chat board. So, Jonathan, what's the topic for today? Well, Rick, the question is, is the hell of Christian tradition taught in the Bible? Part three. And our theme text is found in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Okay, you'd think we would have had enough of the subject, but we're back for part three, is the hell of Christian tradition taught in the Bible. So, let's get started with this. Let's dive right in. Understanding the truth of the hellfire teaching is difficult. On one hand, we have powerful Christian tradition that has for over 1,500 years emphatically taught that all those who do not come to Jesus will suffer eternal torment and torture for their sins. That's a hard teaching and a strong stand. On the other hand, we have those, now these others are including ourselves, who stand against this tradition with all of the force that we can muster. We don't challenge it because it's not convenient. We don't refute it because we can't emotionally accept it. We speak out because we believe that it has no legitimate place within Christian teachings. We believe it to be wholly false. Today's part three of this series will feature our hopefully clear and respectful responses to those who uphold the Hellfire Doctrine and have presented their scriptural challenges to our view. So actually in to help us with this today, Jonathan, is Julie. Good day, Julie. How are you? Hi, Rick. Hi, Jonathan. I'm doing great. And Julie, you are a Christian Questions contributor from way back. Yeah, I've been a volunteer since 2010, and I work on a lot of things that you see on the website, as well as the CQ Rewind every week and help with researching on the programs and and some social media things as well. And so Julie is here. She's going to play a very specific role for us as we go through this, and we'll explain that in a moment. But first of all, folks, let me tell you what's coming up on today's podcast. We're going to head straight into several of the most difficult controversies regarding the teaching of hellfire. We will directly address the account of the rich man and Lazarus. Was it a story or was it a real-life event? Was the rich man being tormented in eternal flames? Was his counterpart Lazarus really in heaven watching him? Our next hot spot after that will be the Revelation scriptures that many of you wanted, well, actually you kind of demanded, commentary on. What's meant by the smoke of their torment rising up forever? What does it mean that they're tormented day and night? Right now, before we get into all of those things, we're going to take about two minutes and set a foundation for our conversation by reviewing part two of this three-part series on hell 
And then we'll get right into the meat of the matter. And the first thing we'll do is address a direct question and challenge from a Facebook comment on the Isaiah prophecy that talks about dead corpses and unquenchable fire. So, Jonathan, there's a lot on the table here today. There really is, Rick. And uh, a lot of controversy. We're going to take it piece by piece by piece by piece. So, Jonathan, very quickly, first, a quick summation from our last uh, segment, part two of this series on the doctrine of hell. What is it really in Scripture? Well, Jesus' ministry was for three and a half years. He mentioned Gehenna on four occasions. So now Gehenna is the word that's used for a hellfire primarily in the Scriptures by, by Jesus, and he mentioned it on four separate occasions. Go ahead. The rest of the New Testament covers over 30 years, excluding Revelation and 22 books. Okay, keep going. The rest of the New Testament was written by six authors, including Revelation. So what's the point of all of that? And lastly, Gehenna is only mentioned once after Jesus, the lake of fire in Revelation excluded. Okay, so it's interesting that you go through 30 years of gospel and nobody talks about hellfire anymore. Did they forget? See, that, that's an important thing. Um, you know, and just some, something about G Jesus and, and prophecy, Jonathan. Jesus does not quote prophecy and suddenly, out of the context of all the sacred biblical writings before him, change the meaning of what was said to contradict all that was previously prophesied. Because he's talking about, he mentions unquenchable fire, and we spent a lot of time on the unquenchable fire in part one of the series in the Old Testament, and we found out that its meaning wasn't what people think it is, according to Old Testament usage and reason, and meanings, and so forth, uh, this fire was destructive until its work was complete. That's what unquenchable actually meant back then. So, Julie, before we get started with, with you and your particular part in this, Jonathan, we're going to go to a soundbite that we're going to be going back to uh, frequently, the, the, this source. This is from Green Pastures Church, and this uh, is a sermon on the judge and his justice. And we've taken several pieces from this talk that we're going to refer back to throughout our podcast today. And this, uh, this pastor believes diametrically differently than we do. So we, we thought we would drop in on a lot of his thinking and his conclusions and his reasoning and give you our comments uh, because this was actually referred to us by one of our Facebook folks who said, uh, look, if you want the truth about the, the hell teaching, listen to this guy. So I did. It was an hour and a quarter, and I listened to the entire thing. I took notes, and I tried to follow the reasoning, and we'll, we'll make some comments on that. So, Jonathan, let's get started with this first part where he's talking about God and Adam to, to start with. And the Hebrew word for Sheol is often translated hell or the grave. When God came to Adam in the garden... He said, in the day that thou eatest thereof, the judgment that will be passed is that you will enter into hell. And the hell that was spoken of there was the grave. And what happens in the grave? You rot. And worms eat your body and you decay and this is a grotesque thing this is what literally happens this is the judgment of God upon your body 
Okay, Jonathan, what do you think? Well, Rick, my first uh, issue is that the phrase uh, that you will enter into hell uh, to Adam, um, mentioned by the pastor, was not actually what was written in Genesis. It's, it's, but you will surely die. Okay. And that word die is not the word sheol. Um, and we found that in Genesis 2.17, thou shalt surely die. The first time sheol is used in the Old Testament is actually in Deuteronomy. Um, so it's a different word. And to die means die or kill. So basically, Adam did not enter. Now, Adam did enter into the grave, and yes, the body decayed and returned to the ground. But not only did his body go there, Rick, but his entire being. Because of what God taught us in Genesis 2.7. It says, then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into the nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Body plus breath equals soul. Rick, if you take the breath away, no more being or soul. He simply said, you will die. You don't have a soul. You are a soul, a being. Okay, and, and it's interesting because, you know, he talked about his body. This is God's judgment on his body. I don't know where he got that from. Because that's not what the scripture said. The scripture didn't say, this is the judgment on your body. He says, you, in the day that thou eatest thereof, the literal translation is, dying thou shalt die. Because, you know, Adam didn't die within 24 hours of taking a bite of the fruit. It took him 900 plus years. Dying thou shalt die. The process will begin, and it will eventually get you. So... So there, there's, there's a contradiction there that we want to be aware of and say, okay, you know, what, what about that? Okay, so w- one other quick point by way of background, and then, Julie, we're going to turn this over to you in, in terms of, you know, putting us in, in perspective for how we're going to uh, approach this today. You know, the various early church, many of the various early church fathers, and I use that, you know, in, in quotes, air quotes, confirm a gradual corruption of true biblical teachings regarding the hell doctrine. That's why in my initial comment I said that the church has taught it for over 1,500 years, because the first several hundred years of church teaching, you don't find the hellfire teaching within Christianity. It developed long after the scriptures were written, and I think that's an important point. So, Julie, what's specific about today's approach? Well, you know, our social media, that's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and they've been all very active on this topic and for our first uh, number one and number two version of this. And so now this is number three. So what we wanted to do is because we love interacting with people as we reason out the scriptures together, we want to directly quote some of the, quite frankly, negative reactions we received to our previous two podcasts. That's if you want to look those up for our listeners, it's episodes 1021 and 1027. And we wanted to respectfully respond to their questions and their challenges. So what we're going to do today is these will be reprinted directly as we receive them in our CQ Rewind transcript. So please subscribe. Actually, you don't even need to subscribe anymore. You can just go ahead and go to this particular program and click on the CQ Rewind and you can see the written transcript in about maybe about five days from now. Um, And so I'm going to read them a little more grammatically correct so we can quickly understand their intent. Okay. Sometimes when you type quickly, you don't always pay attention to your punctuation. Yeah, well, I type with two fingers, so go figure. (laughs) So let's start with Reggie. A man named Reggie has some comments, and he commented on Isaiah 66, 22 to 24. So why don't we read that first? Okay. So Isaiah 66, 22, 24. 
For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I make, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from the new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come to bow down before me. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. So what's his comment on that? So Reggie writes, this is a prophecy of hell viewed by flesh and blood people living during the new heaven and earth in post-millennial reign eternity. God's way of ensuring no more rebellion throughout eternity is by having all these people look upon those agonizing in hell each week and each month. The scriptures here are clear and speak for themselves, unless, of course, someone wants it to mean something other than what it clearly says. Hell is eternal punishment, and though it surely makes God sad, he's not hiding it, but he's rather using it as an eternal example. So... Let's think about this. This is a really scary text. Yeah. It sounds like it's saying that the earth is going to be cracked open at some regular intervals for people to look down and see the people who died are and are in some sort of everlasting fire. But it's interesting that he used the phrase flesh and blood people will be the ones doing the viewing, mm -hmm. which doesn't sound like he's imagining these viewers to be in heaven because we all know the scripture says flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. So I wonder where where these viewers are and and what it is that they're viewing. Okay, and he's a it sounds like a post-millennialist that you know and believes that there will be a resurrection on earth, which is something we also believe in. So, you know, you're taking that and 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 let's let's put that in context. But Jonathan, just just so, so a quick comment before we get into uh, some of the details. Well, this text was discussed on podcast 1021 segment 4. Our focus in that discussion was the true scriptural and historical meaning of fires that will not be quenched. Okay, so we did discuss this in some detail, but we're going to take a look at a different approach than we did in, in, in 1020, was it 1021 you said? Yes. Okay, so let's talk about corpses, because in the scripture it's pretty plain. It says, they will look upon the corpses of men who have transgressed against me. So, Jonathan, the word for cor corpse, what does it mean, literally? It means a carcass as limp, whether of man or beast, figuratively an idolatrous image. Okay, so there are several scriptures that use the word for corpse. And we're going to make a, a very clear point because he's taking the fire and so forth very, very literally. and But it's talking about corpses. So, Jonathan, let's just touch on two scriptures, other scriptures in the Old Testament that use that word for corpse. Leviticus 26.30, And I will destroy your high places, and cut down your images, and cast your carcasses upon the carcasses of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. It's interesting that it says, I'll cast your carcasses, your dead bodies, literally, upon the carcasses of your idols. So, I mean, if there is ever a lifeless picture in Scripture, it's that of an idol. And, yes, absolutely. And, and so in Leviticus, the idol is called a, cor, a, a carcass. And I think that's interesting. Quickly, Numbers 14.29. Your carcass shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you according to your whole number, from 20 years old and upward, which have murmured against me. Okay, so your carcasses, you're going to fall down dead in the wilderness. And so, so, Julie, as we're looking at this, from the standpoint of Reggie's comments... We're talking about specifically about carcasses here. 
any any feedback as you as you sit there having read his comment and seeing what he is what his point is well i think that if i if i subscribe to this idea i would i would rebut you and say that that's just what the first preacher said that this was the judgment on the body so there may be a dead body a carcass that's being in there but that doesn't account for the fact that my soul is somewhere being tortured and being in anguish. Okay, and my rebuttal to that would be really simple. The scripture doesn't talk about anything else but the carcass. But okay. don't, don't, no, no, no. But you can say but, but read. Oh, the it's text. only the carcass that's having the right. whatever it is done to it. Right. It's okay. not saying. Okay. It's not separating them out. It's just saying carcass. See, from a scriptural perspective, we look at total destruction as the biblical end for the incorrigible, and I think that's what this verse is actually showing us. The, the the destructiveness, the ongoing flames to until their work is done. Just a couple of quick scriptures because we're about out of time for this segment. Psalm thirty seven twenty on destruction. Jonathan, go ahead with that one. But the wicked will perish, and the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. So it's interesting. The wicked will vanish away like smoke. And if you've ever watched smoke rise up, you eventually you just can't see it anymore. It vanishes away to the naked eye. One other verse on destruction, Acts 3.23. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear the prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. All right. So, Julie, we're talking about carcasses in the verse and, and, and the clarity of destruction. Any, and and we're, 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 we're shy on time here, but any quick comment before we wrap this segment up? Well, I think what Jonathan just read, Acts 3.23, that every soul that does not hear the prophet, which does not follow God, will be destroyed. So if a soul is destroyed, that text proves we don't have an immortal soul. So the soul or person who doesn't obey will be destroyed, not tortured forever. And that's what the verse says. And folks, again, it comes down to reading scripture verses. So scripturally, the line in the sand is destruction, and that's the end for those who defy God. So the Old Testament's about death. What about the rich man suffering in hell in the New Testament? We're excited to be hearing from our growing listening audience at ChristianQuestions.com through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also chat with us now during the live broadcast. You know what would be really awesome? If you can leave us a review when you subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and others. It helps us reach even more people. Thank you for subscribing and reviewing. Now, let's take the next steps in our comprehensive conversation. Next, we will look at several New Testament scriptures, as most Christians who believe in hell rarely use the New Test, uh, the Old Testament scriptures, uh, uh, rarely use the Old Testament oops, as proof. There really are scriptures that do appear to have all of the ingredients necessary for hell and torment. Absolutely, they look like they do. We'll look slowly and carefully because this, in this case, the devil really is in the details. And we want to go slowly through this because this is where the, the, the conversation really picks up in terms of the controversy and, I might add, the emotion that's attached to the controversy. So, so Julie, let's go to another commenter and their position on some New Testament things now that we touched on the Old Testament. Okay, so we had a, a, a man named Jeff, and Jeff wrote the following. The rich man was hot. Remember, he asked for Lazarus to dip his finger and place it on his tongue. You guys are all blinded and twisting scripture. It's crazy. 
How's that for figurative? <laughs> you are just like the pastors who always want to spin things to fit their doctrinal beliefs or teaching from some college seminary they went to who taught them wrong, yet they want to act like they know it all. Ever learning, but never coming to the true knowledge of truth. And by the way, it's soul and body, but it doesn't say spirit. They will live and know and feel every bit like the rich man did. Oh, wait, you'll probably twist the scripture or the rich man, too, and make up some theological answer for it. Okay, well, there you have it. And sure, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to give you an answer that we believe is biblical and sound. How you interpret it, that's entirely up to you. But that's where we're going to go with this. So, Jonathan, we're going to go back to Green Pastures and the the sermon, The Judge and His Justice. And the pastor here is going to be talking about this this rich man and Lazarus. So we're going to sort of parallel some of his comments and comment on what he says along with some of the things that Jeff brought out as well. So let's go back to uh, another soundbite from uh, the pastor at Green Pastures on this. I want us to notice that this is an actual factual story. And I want us to tell there's been a lot of confusion concerning Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. But I want to make a few observations. Jesus, in none of his parables, a lot of times people say that this is a parable. This is a fictional story in order to convey a factual principle. But I want us to notice a few things. In every parable, Jesus always started with these words. The kingdom of heaven is like... In this story, he says, there was a rich man which was clothed in purple, fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. In none of his parables does he ever name his characters. Jesus always says there was a rich man. There was a poor man. There was a just man. There was an unjust man. He never gives names in his parables. But in this story, he names an individual. And not only did he name an individual, he named a literal person. <laughs> Lazarus. And what happened to Lazarus? He died and rose again. Okay, so Jonathan, uh, some comments on what you saw in that. And let's, uh, you know, with the, with the comments on the Lazarus part, let's, let's put those off a little bit. Okay, because we'll get to that a little bit later. Go ahead. Well, Rick, there are roughly 50 parables in the Bible. 30 don't use the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. Only, I found, 12 do. And about eight talk about some words of heaven, but they're not mentioned the same way as that phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. And just a couple examples. Um, The house built upon a rock doesn't use the kingdom of heaven is like or the new cloth on old garments, or the new wine in old bottles. Also, the parable of the lost sheep, um, according to Matthew. Um, So I came up with a different um, understanding of parables than than he shared. But uh, one point, Abraham was not alive, he died. And we know Ecclesiastes tells us the state of the dead in chapter 9, verses 5 and verse 10. For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in Sheol, whether thou goest. And the point that I was thinking about was in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of them that slept. So bottom line, Abraham was in the grave, He is dead at that point, 
this is a parable. Okay, and so we do take it as a parable uh, in a series of parables. And Julie, you had some, some thoughts on the series of parables. Well, and I thought first that it was interesting that I looked in my King James Bible that the heading says the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So there are at least some translations that that call it out as such. That, of course, doesn't prove that it's a parable, but that's just something to back it up. And also what I thought was interesting is that he said there's because there's a name to it, that means it's not a parable. But just because you name a character does not automatically mean that it's not a parable. It could be an exception to the rule. Um, but now I forgot what you actually asked me. Well, you know what? Remember the parables preceding this? Oh, right, right, right. So this was the group. This is what we believe to be the fifth in a grouping of five parables. So just for the record, look up Luke 14, 16, Luke 15, 3, Luke 15, 11, and Luke 16, 1. And those are the ones that preceded this right in the same, you know, Jesus speaking in the same, uh, same day, same time. Right. And none of them say the kingdom of heaven is like no, the none of, of God them is do. Like. Okay, so and that's interesting. So no, it's, it's not really it's not really true according to scripture. And look, the whole point is let's speak truth according to scripture. Okay, here here's the way we see it: the rich man and Lazarus is the fifth in a string of parables in Luke 15 and 16. It's a story of reversal. Here's what we think it means. Jesus was directing this parable to the Pharisees and forcefully teaching that Israel, the Pharisees, okay, the rich man, Israel, the Pharisees were represented by the rich man, were about to lose favor with God, which was shown in being close to Abraham, and the Gentiles, pictured by Lazarus the beggar, were about to gain that same favor that Israel was to lose. Jesus was illustrating the suffering and anguish that Israel and the Pharisees were going to experience. Jesus was illustrating extraordinary loss. And I think that's an important point here. Now, there's several elements that we're going to discuss, beginning with hell and being in torments. Uh, to begin to do that, though, let's go back to the pastor at uh, Green Pastures, the judge and his justice, and uh, just listen to another couple of his comments relating to Abraham in heaven and so forth. And Jonathan, I know you already started on that, but there's a few other pieces here as well. In this story, Jesus says that the rich man, the, the Lazarus died and was carried into Abraham's bosom. It's Abraham's embrace. In other words, when Lazarus got to where he was, Abraham met him and was holding him. Imagine entering into heaven and there's Abraham and it's just like you walked in the church and Abraham wraps his arms again. Brother, welcome home. Can you imagine that? Lazarus, Lazarus has lived his life in pain and torment in this life. His body has been in anguish. And now his soul enters into heaven. And there's Abraham in his spiritual body. And he wraps his spiritual arms around spiritual Lazarus. And he holds Lazarus. And he says, welcome home. Okay, Jonathan, what do you think? Well, the first point, Rick, into Abraham's bosom obviously is picture language because it can't literally happen. We need to be consistent. How about some truth to dispel error? If you lived and died before Jesus' sacrifice, heaven was not available to you. Remember what Jesus said about John the Baptist, Verily I say unto you, among men that are born of women, there hath not arisen a greater than John the Baptist, yet he that is but little in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. 
heavenly resurrection of Christians are greater than earthly resurrected prophets. Remember, God's kingdom is both on earth as it is in heaven. Abraham will also be resurrected earthly. Because he died before Jesus opened the way to the high calling. And in Hebrews eleven thirty nine and 40, and all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. And Rick, I think that's a heavenly reward. Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And Rick, Jesus and the bride of Christ, the church from heaven, their job is to resurrect the world of mankind. So that's their job to resurrect everyone that is not heavenward. Okay, and and you know the interesting thing is Jesus also said along with the scriptures that you you quoted says you know no man hath ascended up to the Father except the Son who hath come down from the Father. So he's saying nobody is there. So we can't put Abraham there if Jesus himself said it can't can't be happening. So with that thought in mind, let's take a look now. Let's get into the parable, Luke sixteen twenty three. And actually, Julie, why don't you read that verse for us, Luke sixteen twenty three. And in hell, which is actually the word Hades, he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeing Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. Okay, so you mentioned hell is the word Hades. That's the Greek equivalent to the word Sheol, which obviously meant the grave. And uh, again, CQ Rewind, the bonus material, has some more scriptures on this. We want to encourage you to take a look at that. It's not going to be out for five days or so till after we're done with all of this. But it really, the bonus material gives you extra stuff that we just don't have time to talk about. Let's talk about being in torments, because that's the key. That's the key to everything. So, Jonathan, the word for torment, what's there? There's, there's two definitions. What's the first definition, and then what's the second definition? Because they sound very different, these two definitions. Well, Rick, the first is a touchstone, which is a black cilia stone, which used to test the purity of gold or silver by the color of the streak produced on it by rubbing it with either metal. So, so, this, so, so before you do the second, so the first definition of this word is literally a stone, a black stone that's used to determine whether metal is genuine or not. Exactly. Okay, what's the second definition? By which one is forced well, read to... The whole thing. Read, read the whole thing. Okay. The rack or instrument of torture by which one is forced to divulge the truth. Okay, so Julie, you go back to Jeff's comments, and he's talking about Lazarus being in torment. And you could see, you can see, if you're talking about a rack of inst- or instrument of torture, you can see where somebody can get that, right? It, well, yeah, if the, if the word could mean both, it's been translated both, how do we know that we're translating it correctly by saying it's a touchstone or in this uh, by parable of role reversal that it's a, it's a memory, like a, a memory of this? Okay. So why do we go with the first definition and not the definition that says torture? And I think there's a very clear reason. Give us a couple minutes, and we're going to get to that very clear reason. So I'm going to put you on hold on that, okay? What we're saying, though, is rather than being tortured, we suggest that this rich man had been tested for purity as a son of Abraham and was obviously revealed as failing because that's what the touchstone does. It is a test to reveal... Uh, purity. And it they tested it for gold, and if the streak was a certain color, you knew that the coin that you were scraping on it was actual real gold. If not, it wasn't. Abraham and Lazarus. We've got Lazarus, the spiritual seed in this verse. He's saying, you know, uh, uh, Lazarus is with Abraham afar off. Well, if you look at Romans 11, 17 to 20, we won't read it, but the Gentiles are grafted into the position of favor. 
So we're looking at this saying, Jesus is using this as an example to show us favor and a dramatic loss of favor, a huge loss. Now, I know there, there go ahead, Jonathan. And, and Rick, isn't this giving the Pharisees a last attempt to repent? Um, uh, you know, and that's why he's trying to make these points to, to shake them, wake them up. I think, I think that this is Jesus' last parable attempt with them, and then he makes one final attempt in Matthew chapter 23, where he talks directly to them and tells them what hypocrites they are. Uh, this is trying to tell them without saying it. Uh, this is gracious, I think, what Jesus is doing here. Now, 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 Julie, I know that there's, there's comments that are looking at what we're saying and saying, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so Jeff said, all, all I know is the rich man was burning where he was, and Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom, nice and comfortable. Spin it how you want, guys. I'm done. Okay, spin <laughs> it how we want. Well, look, this is not spinning it. This is looking to try to find the truth of Scripture. We know Abraham wasn't in heaven because Jesus himself said so. So we also know that Abraham was not yet raised from the dead because Jesus himself said so. So you can say that Lazarus is all comfy, but Abraham is dead. So it has to have a symbolic meaning of the favor of being a son of Abraham. So let's move on to asking about the drop of water, because then we're going to get to why is it that we think being tested rather than being tortured is appropriate. Jonathan Luke sixteen twenty four. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Okay, there's the phrase. I am tormented in this flame. And this phrase gets pointed to and quoted again and again. And Jonathan, if you just read this phrase in relation to the first verse where it says, being in torments, they sound like the same thing, don't they? They do. They really do, Rick. But they're not. No. No, they're not even close. Folks, let's look up the word for torment here. Because... He's crying for mercy now. This rich man's crying for mercy. He's saying, don't abandon me, even though I already abandoned you. That's really what's happening here. Send Lazarus with a drop of water. We're going to get to the water in the next segment. But let's talk about the torment part, because this is huge. What does that word for tormented mean, where it says, I am tormented in this flame? Rick, it means to grieve. It doesn't mean torture. No, it means to grieve. It doesn't mean physical pain. No, just to grieve. That's it. Okay couple of verses where this word is also used. Luke two, forty-eight, And then they saw him. They were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Okay. And Rick, that word sorrowing is the same word for tormented, which means to grieve. Okay, so it doesn't mean to be tortured. It means to grieve. That's an entirely different set of circumstances. When you grieve, it's personal. It's emotional. It's quiet. It, it's inside your heart, your, your heart broken at a huge loss. Being tortured, there's no time for grieving because the pain is searing and unescapable and too big. So, so Julie, we won't read the second scripture. It's Acts twenty thirty eight in the interest of time. But just in, taking a look at that, the definition here versus the way it read in the verse, what's your response? What's your reaction to that? Well, I think, you know, it can be very confusing, but it's the scriptures show you then how you should use it. So we could either make something up to fit the narrative or we can let the scriptures interpret themselves. And with this word being grieving, you don't grieve when you are in this, you know, these indescribable Dante Inferno type 
pitchforks and flesh falling off of you and all these horrible things, you're not grieving that. You're in agony. You're screaming. Right. But that's not what's here. So I think that's what you're saying is why we know we can use the touchstone piece of this and not the painful piece of this, because the scripture tells us that. Right. The scripture tells us that by using this particular word here. It's not that, oh, you're finding the convenient way. No, 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 no. We're finding the contextual consistency. That's what we're finding. And that's why, unequivocally, I say, yes, it means a touchstone. He was being tested and shown to be utterly, totally lacking. It is amazing how important it is to get the definitions correct. So the rich man had been tested and then was grieving at his failure. What about the flame and no water? There's a lot of talk program topics out there. If you're burnt out on Capitol Hill and Trump, don't worry. We never go there. But if you're looking for unique ways to look at the Bible, we'll make you think about how today's world ties into Scripture like you've never thought about before. Thanks for listening, and get ready for us to take a deeper dive right now. When working through the imagery of a parable, we need to be careful to let the story teach us instead of wanting to program the story's outcome. This particular story was exceptionally important as Jesus saw the end of the time was approaching for the Pharisees to change their hearts. And Jonathan, that's what you just said. Jesus was being gracious by telling them this dramatic story. And we truly believe it was a story for several of the reasons already mentioned. There's still more reasons to come as to why it's a story. But you can see the picture language. They were favored of God because they were sons of Abraham. They lost that favor and were going to be replaced. And guess what happened after Jesus died? Shortly after, the Gentiles came in and replaced the Jews as the, as the favored ones on, on that spiritual level. So Jesus is telling them, here's what's going to happen if you don't change your tune. That's, that's the parable of warning specifically for the Pharisees. Let's go back to Green Pastors, the judge and his justice, and hear his comments, the, the pastor's comments here, on the, the phrase of um, cooling my tongue, and we'll make some comments on that. This man says, you send Lazarus over here that he may dip the tip of his finger, bring it over here, and touch my tongue, that I may have... A little relief. This man was in so much torment that even the slightest bit of relief would have been amazing. This man doesn't ask Abraham to douse him in water. This man doesn't say, give me a glass of water. This man just wants something to cool the tip of his tongue. That's how much pain he is. The word torment here means torture, by the way. Unceasing torture. And actually, it didn't mean torture, that last second one. It didn't. Look it up. But uh, Jonathan, just, just before you comment quickly, you got to admire his passion for what he believes. You know, and, and, I, and I appreciate that. I think, it's, I think it's dead wrong, but I absolutely appreciate the passion with which he is trying to get his point across because he obviously believes it, it is the, the, the truth of the matter. Go ahead. Well, Rick, my focus went to the rich, um, the rich man. Remember the rich young ruler? He was sincere and full of faithfulness to the law, 
but he was unwilling to give his riches away to follow in Jesus' footsteps. He was unwilling to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him. Some can't live a life of sacrifice and give up their own will. That's the cost of discipleship. Riches distract and draw selfishness out of us. But the rich young ruler will regret in the kingdom, being on the earth, that he had an opportunity but wasted it to not be with our Lord in heaven. He didn't answer the call like the Pharisees. Yeah, yeah. And and, and so, you know, it's a matter of having opportunity but not taking opportunity. And that's, you know, that's something that Jesus is teaching in this particular parable. So, so let's go back into this and um, with, with, with. But, but, but wait, but did okay. you notice that the parable says he's a rich man? It doesn't say he's a bad man. It doesn't say he did something wrong. He just, his crime was being rich, which is not a crime. And yet the poor man, his apparent, you know, um, amazingness was the fact that he was a beggar. Right, and, you know that, that that doesn't make sense either. And I just want to bring out a note that our, if our listeners wanted to go to uh, episode number eight eight one, okay, that's a time where we went over this parable in in just excruciating detail, line by line by line. So it's a good backup companion to this particular broadcast. Yeah, we're we're touching on this parable in a couple of segments here, but then we spent uh, we spent the whole entire podcast piece by piece by piece trying to put this together. So and Rick, isn't it absurd that one drop of water? would be a relief considering all eternity that this man is being tortured beyond belief and he yes for one drop of water i mean just you it lends itself to a picture well it does it truly does we're going to get to the water part in a moment but let's talk about it says i'm being tormented grieved not tortured grieved look it up in this flame that's another picture language hint that most of us just completely overlook because we get so captivated by torture that we don't even consider. The word for flame here is a simple word. It means a flash or a blaze. Now, it's interesting because the word for flame here is used in a different way than normal. Let, let's take a look at an example. Uh, Jonathan, let's go to Acts chapter 7, verse 30. And when 40 years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. Okay, in a flame, that's the word, of fire. You notice it says of fire there. Mm-hmm. Okay. It also uses flame of fire symbolically in Hebrews 1 7. Every single time this word for blaze is used in the New Testament, except for in this parable, every single time it says flame of fire. It literally leaves the fire out of this parable. Now, folks, I bet you didn't know that. How do we know? Look it up. Just look it up. Look at the. Uh, Look at the way the word is used, and what you see is it's talking about I am being, I am grieved, not tortured, I am grieved in this light. What light? The light that he had foregone the favor of God through Abraham, and now he was, he was separated from it. That's the whole point. It's the revealing of past indiscretions and misuses of favor. The flame is not a destructive fire at all, but a blaze, a brightness that's kindled to bring light that uncovers all things. That's what it is. Look it up. Verse 25, Jonathan, let's go to that. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is confronted, and thou art tormented. And the word, Rick, is grieved. Okay, he's comforted. 
You're tormented. It's a, it's a story of reversal. So here we're seeing the anguish of heart at sin being revealed in the light of truth. The anguish of heart at sin being revealed in the light of truth. That's what the phrase tormented in this flame means when you look at it for what the words really are. Anguish of heart at, 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 at sin being revealed in the light of truth. This agony isn't physical torture, but it's a realization that you've been, you've been exposed. There's now nothing you can do but accept the consequences that you've earned. So, um, Julie, I'll ask for your comments in, in a moment. I want to get to the water and cooling his tongue, and then we'll just get, get you back in here. Um, so, Jonathan, let's go to verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. Okay. A chasm, this big, huge valley-type place. And a ca- you've heard the phrase, you can't get there from here. Yes. Well, this is you can't get here from there. Okay? That's what this is saying. Jesus showing them that they're coming disfavor and desolation, uh, and he's actually, with the water and the chasm, he's quoting a prophecy. So if you go to the prophecy, it's going to make a whole lot more sense. So let's do that. This prophecy ties into the lack of water, into this great chasm, and into the period of time that Jesus is actually speaking about. Zechariah 9, uh, verses uh, 9. Just read verse 9 for, for, for right now, Jonathan. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon a donkey, even upon a colt of the foal of a donkey. Okay, so if you pause right there. That's Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That's going to take place very soon after this parable is spoken. So this, if, if Jesus is warning the Pharisees about their coming desolation, this prophecy is dropping in right exactly at the same time that Jesus is speaking about. And what does the prophecy say? Read, read through the next few verses. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. As for thee also, because of the blood of thy covenant, I have set free thy prisoners from the pit wherein is no water. Uh-huh. Turn, turn you to the stronghold, ye prisoners of hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double unto thee. So when it says, I have set free the prisoners from the pit wherein there's no water, that's a future part of the prophecy. And he's saying, you are prisoners of hope. In other words, there's something good coming, but you don't get it yet. And he says, I will render double unto thee. And that word double means a, a folding over. In other words, and, and we're not going to get into this, Israel had been in favor for a very long, long, long time. At, when they rejected Jesus, they were put into a, a period of disfavor for a mirror image long, long, long time of their favor. That's what that word double, the, the Hebrew word is mishnah. That's what it means, a folding over, an exact replica, if you will. So it's interesting. They were going to be in a pit wherein there is no water. What's Lazarus crying, or the rich man crying for? A drop of water. He's in this pit. So, so Julie, we're looking at this, and we're looking at the torment being grieved. We're looking at the water from a perspective of prophecy. Put it, put it together now. As you're looking in on it, what, what are you getting? Well, it's, it seems like, um, I do have a question. What yeah. is the great chasm that's been fixed between the two? What, how did, how, what was the chasm between the Jews and the Gentiles that was fixing it? Well, what, what would happen is that the, once the call went to, out to the Gentiles, it became, as, as the disfavor to the Jewish nation came to its full, 
fruition. And we see that in AD 70 when Jerusalem was sacked uh, by the Roman, uh, Roman armies. You can see that there was Christianity became almost exclusively Gentile. And there is this great big void between them because the nation had lost its favor. The rich man is the nation of Israel losing their favor. And to go from the, the nation to come back to national favor, it was too big. It couldn't happen. There was no way to get them back to right. be the favored because the Gentiles now, that call was now open. Right. And those positions would be filled by Gentiles. Exactly. Okay. Precisely. That's, that's, that's what it's really boiling down to. So this chasm is this great big space when Jesus said, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. That was the creation of this chasm that judgment Ze pronounced. Right. That Zechariah was talking about. And the fascinating thing is Jesus is using the elements of the prophecy of Zechariah, which are about his proclaiming himself as Messiah, literally mm. to happen a few weeks later, uh, and, 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 and the, the results to the Jewish nation because they rejected him. So we've got the chasm, we've got the water, we've got the, 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 the grieving. Any other Facebook comments or any other of your comments or questions now as we're trying to put this all together? Uh, you know, Jeff at this point had said this is not a parable because of the actual name in it, and I think hopefully we'll come up and talk about that soon, but it's okay. You'll twist it to fit your doctrine. Like I said, there's no debating people who think they know it all and just cannot imagine being wrong, and I that makes me so sad because of of all people, we do try to be as, as close to the scriptures and as sincere and respectful of them and of fellow Christians as possible. And it's not that we can't imagine being wrong. We want to reason on these scriptures. We want to talk about it. We want to find truth just like Jeff wants to find truth. So let's find it together instead of, you know, just Throw, debating all the time. Throwing darts at one another. Yeah, we don't need to do that. We don't. We really don't. And the idea is to get down to the core of the matter. Okay, so let, let's go back to another soundbite from Green Pastures, uh, The Judge and His Justice. And this is a little bit more about Lazarus. And, and then let's talk about this literal name and why, it, why Jesus did use a name in this parable and no other parable. I think there's an amazing reason for that. We're going to get to that in just a moment. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. Imagine being this man. Imagine being this man. Lazarus is a man who lays there and he's, he's got ulcers on his, on his skins and the dogs literally come and lick the pus that is coming from it man's in a miserable state. Okay, so Jonathan, if this is a literal story about Lazarus, then what's wrong with this picture? Well, my question is, what does it symbolize? Yeah. <laughs> what is its meaning? Yeah, it sounds gross, but what is Jesus' meaning? The gate represents outside the gate of favor. Good. The Gentiles were on the outside. How about full of sores? Represents sins, moral uh, defilement, in this class, the class of the Gentiles, not a sharer in Israel's yearly sin atonement sacrifices. What about the desire to be fed? Yeah, for God's favor and truth, which belong to Israel alone. But, but I thought an interesting point, two such crumbs given by Jesus 
he threw out some crumbs to some Gentiles there at the end of his ministry. Remember yep. healing the Roman centurion servant and the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman. Um, so if you think about it, how close were the Gentiles in receiving favor from God? Very, very mm. close. And, and you know, the, the fact that the dogs licked his sores are indication that it was Gentiles because the Gentiles were considered dogs in That's Jewish right. tradition. But here's the other part. Okay, remember earlier this pastor said that this is a story about a literal man named Lazarus who was raised by Jesus from the dead. And incidentally, think about that. He's raised by Jesus from the dead. So isn't the belief that when you die, you went to heaven? So did, did Jesus pull him out of heaven? Just a question. I don't know, you know, how, the, how that thinking goes, but makes, you know, that, that's a question. But here's the big thing. It can't be about Lazarus, literally. Because if you say it's about Lazarus, literally, it's describing how this Lazarus lived. And I don't know about you, but in the scriptures, Julie, who was one of Jesus' best friends in life? Well, it was Lazarus. And where did Jesus go? Lazarus' house. So Lazarus had real estate. He had food to share. You know, he wasn't eating on the streets. He wasn't begging. I mean, it's not, it's not our Lazarus. Right. Literally. So if you say it's about Lazarus, the guy who was raised from the dead, it, it, it's not. I'm sorry. You know, there comes a point where you can say, well, think about it again or no. Read the scripture. This, this guy is pictured at the gate. He's poor. He's got crumbs. And the dogs are licking his sores. The real man, Lazarus, look at the scriptural accounts. He was well off and one who entertained Jesus frequently in his own home. So, but it is odd that of all the names, if there's only one parable that names someone, that he names Lazarus. So okay. why, why is it Lazarus? Let's look at what happened after Lazarus was raised from the dead. So, Jonathan, let's go to John chapter 12, verses 9 to 11. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. So Lazarus is raised from the dead. And what do the Pharisees want to do? They want to kill Lazarus because he's the evidence. Okay. What did Jesus say about Lazarus in the parable? Let's go back to the parable and see the remarkable fulfillment here. Luke 16, 30 and 31. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Lazarus was risen from the dead. Lazarus was in their face. Jesus mentioned his name long before he died and was raised from the dead. And still they wanted to kill him. Jesus was warning them about losing favor. They were down the road and were not coming back. Jesus, by telling the story, was being utterly dramatic. He was giving the Pharisees a chance. These explanations about the rich man change things. What about other difficult New Testament scriptures? We're uncovering the truth scripture by scripture while gathering information from across today's media landscape with our vast CQ team of contributors. We want to hear from you, our listeners, for more contribution to our conversations. Talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com or message us through the Christian Questions app and our producers may read your comments over the air. Let's continue working through our topic with all our tools. We're reviewing the evidence 
Now let's put it together. As we now move on to other difficult New Testament scriptures, we need to be reminded that a solid biblical foundation is already in place. Both the Old and New Testaments are not supportive of eternal flames of torment. Whatever else we look at has to be seen through this lens, and whatever else we look at cannot be viewed in a vacuum. That is one, in my, my personal opinion, that is one of the key mistakes that many Christians make on this particular subject. We look at a scripture, we zero in on this one text, this one set of words, and we say, there it is. Never should we do that without the context of the rest of scripture. And this next soundbite is going to uh, really help us to see the importance of context. We're going to go back to Green Pastures, the judge and his justice, and uh, he's going to be commenting now on Topheth, which was the valley of, of Hinnom, the Gehenna, uh, that Jesus spoke about, and God's judgment. Listen carefully to how he describes this. This place, Tophet, I meant to mention this a while ago in Mark chapter 9, because Gehenna there in the Greek is the Greek word used, and it is, comes from the word Hymnon. And Hymnon in the Old Testament was a place where the nation of Israel had built a god to Molech. And they built an altar there. It was a brazen altar. And a fire was kindled in its belly. And they would take little babies and they would place it on the arms of that statue. And the drums would beat so that they could, the parents couldn't hear the screams. That child, as it burned alive with torture. God compares... His judgment to the torments of that place. They would bring out people and they would burn them alive in these places. And God compares His torment to this place. Okay. Yikes. Yeah, yeah. Jonathan, go ahead. This is a tough one, man. Did He really compare that pagan ritual with His ways? Let me say plainly. No way. Why? Why? Leviticus 21 to 7, I'm not going to read it, but that was talking about God's judgment on immorality of sacrificing one's offspring to Molech. What was God's judgment? Death to anyone that would do that. Now, Jeremiah 19, 4 through 6 um, is, are really the verses that God showed us, his true colors and his heart. Listen to this. Because they have forsaken me and have made this an alien place and have burned sacrifices in it to other gods that neither they nor their forefathers nor the kings of Judah had ever known, and because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons on the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, a thing of which I never commanded or spoke of nor did it ever enter my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place will no longer be called Topheth or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, but rather the Valley of Slaughter. By the way, there was no torment in Gehenna, only destruction. That is the true comparison, Rick. So God would not 
even ever consider such a thing. And for that, frankly, folks, let me be blunt, for that pastor to insinuate that God compared his torment and torture judgment to what they did to those children is an insidious misrepresentation of Scripture. Look at the Scriptures that Jonathan just just looked at and read. It tells us that God said, no, not here, not now, that's not me, that's not what I do. That is a, 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 a representation that is completely out of the bounds of Scripture. Okay. Julie, go ahead. So, so if you were to believe in this eternal fire, you know, and, and here, here it says, it never came into my mind. This is actually absurd because at that moment, God already had what? At least a million people who had died by then. Yep. They were trapped in a torture chamber prison with no hope of parole, burning in pain eternally. So this means these sacrificed babies would have passed from death to life, being continually in agony, and to this very day in 2018. So they're still being tortured, screaming for relief. Think about that. So if you really believed this, how could you respect a deity like Jehovah, let alone love him and worship him out of love? And none of these pagan countries or the Hebrew, the Hebrews, the God's chosen people for that matter, had ever heard the name of Jesus. So they're all there and there's no free pass scripture that says all the millions who died before Jesus get a free pass to heaven, even though that was never promised and they never knew anything about it. Right, right. So the good news is this is not scriptural. To see it that way obviously is not scriptural. Now we, we've got a lot of ground to cover. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. No, this is this is important, folks. And, and look, we're, 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 we're trying to be as honest as we can and as respectful as we can. And, but, you know, we're getting down to the, to the core of the matter. We're going to get into some revelation scriptures now in this segment, and we're going to have to speed up to get there. But, um, uh, Julie, another comment from uh, somebody else uh, that was uh, in, in disagreement with us. Let's go to, to that, and then let's uh, change gears a little bit. All right, so Stephen wrote, What people fail to understand is that hell in the Bible means many things, but the lake of fire is top-of-the-line hellfire. We've been taught that Satan the devil is in the ground barbecuing people, but that's not true. The Bible teaches that the lake of fire was made for Satan and his followers, angels, and humans. The lake of fire doesn't exist yet, but when the second coming of Jesus happens, he's going to bring it into existence. And whether you want to see it or not, everyone who is still living will have to go to Jerusalem and see it. So I'm, I'm assuming he's referring back to that Isaiah scripture where right. the ground cracks open and you... right. Right, right, right. And again, we've already talked about that. We're not going to go back there, but we are going to go to the Revelation Scripture, Revelation 20.10, in, in just a moment. Um, one more one more soundbite from uh, Green Pastures Pastor, uh, and, and this is a little bit different perspective on on the, uh, the, 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 the thinking of things that happen uh, in hell, potentially. So let's listen. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, he says... For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down into hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. So God cast down, He judges these angels and these demons, He's judged them and He's cast them down into hell and He holds them in chains in torture until the final judgment. All right, Jonathan, a quick comment on that one. First, this Greek word uh, for hell is only used one time. 
Literally, it's called Tartaro, and it represents the Earth's atmosphere. Remember, the devil, devil is called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2.2. So these fallen angels are separated from the holy angels. Now, we can't forget what Peter is explaining. The angels that sinned before the flood, they materialized and commingled with women, reproducing the Nephilim on the earth, the giants. So after the flood, the fallen angels were restrained, unable to materialize, waiting for judgment. The graves are underground, but the fallen angels are trying to possess, manipulate, and deceive the living people from God and his plan. Okay, so it's, you know, it's interesting. He says that they go down there to torture. There's no scripture that indicates torture with this Tartaro. There's none. And so, again, you're jumping to a conclusion that is not scriptural. And the reason that conclusion exists, you know, in, in, in fairness, is that because the doctrine is so pervasive, you assume that these are the things that follow. And that's where we get into trouble, when we make assumptions about scripture. So, as we continue... An introduction, um, as an introduction, we're going to offer the following scriptural facts as we get into the Revelation scripture. There are three extremely similar words translated torment in all of the New Testament verses quoted today. I'm not talking about the words translated for grieve. Those are entirely different. But we're talking about the words with touchstone. That's the first one we've already discussed. And um, the first word, touchstone, uh, in Scripture, describes the testing of one's very core. And we've discussed that, so we're not going to get into it again. Yes, it does have a second definition that says a rack or instrument of torture by which one is forced to divulge truth. But again, in the context that it's used with the rich man and Lazarus, the other word for torment is grieve, and that second definition does not fit with the word. The first definition fits perfectly. We have to be obedient to the way the scriptures describe themselves. This second word, I'm just going to take us through these very quickly, is a verb built off of the same word that in scripture depicts the act of testing or revealing one's true core. The first was a noun, the touchstone, the actual thing. This is the action of what it does to test metals by the touchstone. Now again, it has a secondary definition to be questioned by applying torture. We are looking at these words and saying we have scriptural precedent in the rich man and Lazarus parable. And it tells us it's a testing. I don't think we have the right to say, well, not anymore it's not. When we put it into a different form, it's going to mean something different. Not when the scriptures gave us a precedent. The third word is this uh, in scripture, again, the same basic word for touchstone in Scripture depicts the results of the testing. So you've got the actual touchstone, you've got the act of the test, and then you've got the results of the test. Those three words are used, and in Revelation, they come up. The reason we went through the words is because unless you understand that beforehand, you can drop in on one verse and say, aha, there it is. And that is unfair. That's unfair to scriptural context. It's unfair to the character of God. It's unfair to all of history. It's unfair to do that, and we shouldn't go about our scripture study in that way. Revelation chapter 20, just Jonathan, let's start with verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophets are also, and they will be tormented. And Rick, that's the act of revealing day and night forever and ever. Now that sounds pretty powerful. They will be tormented. 
Now, again, we look at that. That's the verb, the act of revealing day and night forever and ever. Um, now, the lake of fire mentioned here is actually defined a few verses later in Revelation 20:14, and it tells us it's the second death. Because the scriptures have already unequivocally defined this condition in the symbol of Gehenna, Jonathan, you were talking about that earlier. Mm-hmm. Okay, Gehenna being the garbage dump wherein things were thrown to be utterly destroyed, where the fires were continually kept burning so that destruction could have its complete work. And nothing alive was ever thrown in, Rick. Right, okay? So we know that no torture happened there. That's a fact. Let's not confuse what we think may have happened with the facts that we know actually did happen. What we see in these symbols in in this above verse is the ages-long revealing process of sin and corruption of the devil, the beast, the false prophet, and those who follow them. Their actions continue to be revealed even after the destruction. Now, Julie, you know, you've been sort of representing the, the, the other side. Does this come across as a weak, defi- a, a weak description to you? Well, you know, it's interesting because if, if, the, if the devil, everybody wants the devil and the beast and the false prophet, whatever you say they represent, um, which is the systems that are, that are bad. Right. Um, we all want them to be punished for what they've done to humanity. It's kind of interesting, just as a side note, if the devil's here in the lake of fire, who's running the real hell? Yeah. <laughs> if this is the, you know, the top of the line hell, yeah, yeah. Who's, who's the one in the Dante's hell? Um, but so, so if I'm going to put this into my own words, I would say that they will be tormented. If the word tormented means revealed, put to the test and shown to be what they really are, that this would be, is it right to say then for day and night, forever and ever, this is something we would look upon this, what they have done as an eternal lesson of sin so that we know that sin is exceedingly sinful and no one in the kingdom will want to go back to that because that memory will be there. We'll know how bad that felt. Well, and I think that that captures the essence of what this is saying is that the sinfulness, just like with the rich man, was revealed, and it was painfully revealed from the standpoint that you can't hide from the truth. And this revealing, day and night, forever and ever, first of all, there's no word in Scripture that actually means eternally without end, okay? Forever and ever is ages and ages, okay? Mm-hmm. So you have this sense of ages, periods of time, but it's, it's staying more than one, so it's a long, long time. But you're right, the sinfulness of Satan and the beast and the false prophet, the corrupt systems of religion that corrupted the words of Jesus and what the gospel was all about, their sinfulness will be revealed and always remembered because it was so destructive to what God's character truly is. And this process unfolds revelation, uh, as this process unfolds, revelation tells us the rest of the judgments. Let's not forget the rest of these verses. Revelation 20, Jonathan, let's go to 11 through 14, 15, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, for whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing upon the thrones and the books were open and other books were open which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. 
the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So it keeps repeating, the lake of fire, lake of fire, lake of fire, second death. You notice it doesn't say final torment. It doesn't say final, final, uh, final agony. It says second death, the first death. In the day that thou eatest thereof, dying thou shalt die. This is the second death. We die in Adam. As in Adam, all die. Even so in Christ, all can be made alive. Final judgment, final destruction for all who have not conformed to the will of God. This forever and ever, this, this torment, is the revealment, the victory of God over sin is revealed forever and ever for ages and ages. That's the way we really need to look at this. So it is breathtaking how powerful and pointed, I'm sorry, how powerful and pointed Scripture is when it's all in order. So what is the bottom line in all of this? Without hell, does God just give everyone a free ride? Every episode, we cover a lot of ground. Part of gathering all the information and drawing conclusions is having a thorough conversation. Thanks to all our listeners for all your feedback every week. Rick and Jonathan want to hear more comments and questions. Talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com, through all our social media channels, and download our app by searching Christian Questions in your app store. Now, since we have puzzle pieces everywhere, let's put those pieces together. The free ride question is important. because Before we get to it, we need to touch on another Revelation text that is similar to the previous discussion, but also has some other elements. Once that's done, we can then discuss the sanctity of life as God designed it to be lived by his human family. And this is a key factor, the sanctity of life. We will find, and I'm going to tell you what we're going to find ahead of time, we will find that God's judgments in relation to the sanctity of life, are to protect and preserve life. And when someone does not live up to that and has been through accountability and has been through tests and has been given opportunity, the penalty is to lose the sanctity of life as God created it to be. And some folks say, well, that's not bad enough. And I say, what are you talking about? You're dead. You're gone. You are, you you will you you faded into oblivion and there is nothing left. Whereas eternity unfolds with life for all others. That's not bad enough, really. You you don't have an opportunity at that. So to me, there's a sensitive, powerful point there that we're going to get to. Uh, Julie, one, one other uh, an, another comment from one of our dissenters, if you will. Uh, Stephen writes, I mean, you can disagree with me all you want, but this verse clearly states where the beast and false prophet are with those humans along with the devil. Okay, and he's right. You know, he talks about that, and yes, it clearly states some things. And we're going to get into Revelation 14, 9 to 11 in just a minute. Let's go back to Green Pastures, the judge and his justice. And he talks about the Revelation 14 scripture. And again, we want to put this in place before we read the verse because you get a sense for what his viewpoint of this is. Listen carefully. There are those that teach that there is no such thing as hell. That belief believes that when they're cast into the, into the lake of fire, that they cease to exist. That the body, soul, and spirit is, is burned up and that's it. They're no more. And they draw their, their view on that based off of a twisted verse in Revelation chapter 7. And it tells me that they've not ever read the entirety of Revelations. 
Because Revelation chapter 14 tells me that the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever. And that word torment is torture. In other words, the torture of their soul, body, and spirit ascends up into the nostrils of God forever. Why? Because it pleases Him. Why does it please Him? Because sin must be punished. Okay, Jonathan, give you first crack at that. I want first crack, but you can have it. I want second crack. (laughs) All right. There is such a place as hell. It's in the Bible. It's the grave or the pit defined in the Hebrew and the Greek. Now let's look at the context of Revelation 14. What is being tormented and has smoke? Verse 8 tells us it's the fall of Babylon. Remember the Tower of Babel when God confused mankind's languages? The word confusion aptly applies. Nominal Christendom, organized Christian religion, where Satan has misrepresented the truth, teaching doctrines of devils. Around their necks, like a millstone, the systems will soon be destroyed and taken off the scene. The tares are being bundled in denominations, not following God's word, but traditions and ceremonies, which look nothing like Jesus and his disciples. Now, the admonition, come out of her, my people, so that you will not partake of her sins and receive of her plagues in Revelation 18.4, um, should be heated. Okay, so you're giving the context of the Revelation scripture, and I, you know, I, I really, I, it, it's it's sad that he, you know, he's saying that you know they they they've never read all of Revelation. Well, no, not true. I'm sorry, um, you know, but again, context is important and symbology is important too. The symbols of this text. Actually, let's let's start. Let's read it. Let's read Revelation uh, 14 uh, verses 9 and 10 to begin with. We're going to stop in the middle of verse 10. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. So he has symbols here, okay, the beast and his image, representations of great religious systems, as you mentioned, the mark in the forehead, the hand, they're all symbols as well, as is the wine of God's wrath and the cup of indignation. And it says they will drink of the wine of his wrath. Do you think that God is literally going to make them drink this wine? He's going to give them his cup of indignation? Drink up now, drink up. I mean, if you, no. want, <laughs> if you want to take it literally, then take it literally. But it becomes a farce if we take it literally. You see that Revelation is a book of symbols. And let's continue then verse, the rest of verse 10. And he shall be tormented, or the act of revealing, with fire and brimstone in the presence of his holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Okay, so those who insist on sin as a result of the day of judgment will be revealed in the presence of Jesus and his church. Again, notice it said revealed, not tortured, but touchstoned. They will be revealed in the presence of Jesus and his true church, because they are the ones executing the judgment. No one gets away with anything. And, and Julie, that's one of the things that those folks who, who, who are detractors from our particular position, that there is no, no hellfire, say that, well, then people get away with anything. Well, and I think it's like when you when you have people the death penalty, the argument is, well, that they stay in prison, they'll suffer more if you, you know, put them to death, that's they they're done. They don't they don't have any suffering. And everyone wants the quote unquote bad people to suffer. Everybody wants that. But the, you know, the definition of who's bad and who's good, we're all bad in God's eyes is yeah. the problem. But I, I just have to comment quick. I can't believe you didn't say anything on that last comment about where he says 
that torture pleases God because sin must be punished. Everlasting torture does not please God. God hates the evil that each and every one of us is capable of and the horrible, idolatrous things we do. But to say it pleases God to torture humans in unspeakable ways with an eternal concentration camp with no chance to learn a lesson or to reconcile, especially for something you did in this lifestyle, lifetime with you know, mental illness or being blinded by Satan or just having the unfortunate luck of being born in the wrong time, in the wrong country, to the wrong parents. And that defames his character to say that he would revel in this. It pleases him to torture his creation. Well, you're right. You're right. And, and we, we, we cannot go there knowing the character of God. And the thing is, you know, we, folks often talk about, well, these people need to be punished. Also, what about this? Why don't we consider, well, don't they need to be taught Don't they need to be held accountable? Don't they need to be given an opportunity to face those that they wronged and make it right? Isn't that better than just torturing somebody when you give them an actual opportunity to face the people that they hurt? Absolutely, Rick. And that's what the Day of Judgment really is all about. And we're going to get to that a little bit more. I just wanted to plant that here now because it is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. That's not the way God works. There is always accountability. So, so to summarize this particular scripture, all the great religious systems that lead people away from the truth, and that's the beast in the image, uh, and any who worship them will be subject to the wrath of God. Look, God does have wrath. It's, it's, it's unquestionable. And be utterly exposed as false and hypocritical. The touchstone showing what they're made of, and such will meet with complete destruction. That's what fire and brimstone show us, complete destruction in the presence of Jesus and his true followers, the Lamb and the angels. Though destroyed, the remembrance of their now revealed false systems and hypocrisy, the smoke of their torments, will be forever. Those things will have no rest day or night. It's interesting that it says the smoke of their torment rises forever. It doesn't say the fire of their torment rises. Why is that? You know, in ancient times, when a city was sacked and burned, the fires would go out, but they would smolder. And you would see the smoke rising many times for years from that sacked city. That is the imagery that's showing here. You'd look, you'd see that curl of smoke coming up long time after it was done. You'd remember, oh, I remember what happened there. It was over. It's destruction. That's what the symbolism is. So unless God makes them you know, actually drink that wine and so forth, it is a symbolic symbolic situation to look at. Remember, unquenchable fire means the fire is not quenched until its destructive, not tormenting, its destructive work is done. And just as a reminder of that, let's go to Isaiah chapter 34, verses 8 to 10. For Jehovah hath a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and the dust thereof into brimstone, and the land thereof shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched night nor day. The smoke thereof shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. And that verse had both a prophetic and a literal fulfillment. But remember, it says, from generation to generation it shall lie waste. That's the point of the scriptures in Revelation. The evil that stood up against God, that presented itself as godly, as Christian, and wasn't, 
is going to be destroyed and remembered. And you know what? The fire in Isaiah 34, chapter 8, verses, chapter 34, verses 8 to 10, is not still burning today. Now, the scripture says it's unquenchable fire, but it's not still burning. Why? Because the phrase unquenchable fire in scripture actually means fire that will burn until its destructive work is done. That's how we understand it, and that's how we can look at these Revelation scriptures. All right, so having said all of that, we've got just a few minutes left here. Um, we've, got, we've got a reasonable amount of time. So, Julie, one more comment from those who are dissenters, and I think we might have saved the best for the last year. Well, Blaine writes, by simply looking at this group or sex cover page, and that's, that's us, Christian Questions, it's obvious who likes this teaching, the 6-6 people like 666 people like this satanic teaching. I never even knew there was something called 666 people, but okay. It's the number of man and the teaching of man going through God's holy word and twisting and changing. I ask this to you, Christian questions, and I use the word Christian loosely. Why is there so much passion in saving fallen man from nothing? It's evident by the early disciples and even clearer by God giving his only son to die for sinners. So you're saying Jesus died just so sinners won't vanish away. It's an evil teaching. I rebuke this and please repent. So to me, it's odd that what they're calling this evil teaching is one where we're saying that God's mercy and love is bigger than a meaningless, sadistic torturing of everyone who's never heard the name of Jesus or who were blinded not to believe in the power of his ransom during this life. Loss of life in God's plan is not without God fighting for that life to stay. And as heinous as anyone has been in this world, they still have the chance to be accountable, to pay off their sins. And if that individual just won't be accountable, they're going to forfeit their life, and they're gone once they're proven that they can't be brought to that point of accountability before God. And that is borne out in understanding what the day of judgment is. The day of judgment is not the day of final proclamation. See, that's another misconception of Scripture. We've got several podcasts on that, and Julie, maybe when we do Rewind, we should throw one of those in there for reference. But the day of judgment is the day of trial, where you go through the accountability process. And there are several scriptures that say that. So nobody gets off scot-free. Everybody has to be accountable. Everybody has to be accountable. Everybody. One last uh, soundbite, Jonathan, that we're going to go to Green Pastures. Um, and here he talks about destruction, sort of. Let's listen. There should be a peace that comes about our souls when we think of the final justice of God. There is no sin that will go unpunished. He says, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. There's the first identifying mark. They don't love God. And that obey, then they show it forth. They obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with eternal destruction. destruction. What is this eternal destruction? from the presence of God. From the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. So they're going to be isolated from the glory of God and from the power of God and from the presence of God. Okay, Jonathan, a quick response on this one. 
Um, yes, let's have peace in the good news. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How about the promise to Abraham and thee and thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. If ye be Christ, then your heirs, according to the promise, uh, angels declared to the shepherds, good news of great joy to all people. Christ died for the just and unjust as an Adam all dies. So in Christ will all be made alive. Christ died once for all to be testified in due time. Yes. Let's have peace in that good news. <laughs> Quote a scripture, why don't you? <laughs> uh, well, Rick, did you notice he's quoting 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 to 9, and it says these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction right. away from the presence of the Lord and with the Lord. That's We're all agree in agreement. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. 2 Thessalonians tells us this. Right, but the problem is he doesn't allow the definition of destruction to stand. He adds to it. He makes de- he makes destruction not really destruction, but an altered state of being. That's not what destruction is, according to Scripture. We're, we're running out of time here, folks. Uh, lastly, Romans eight six. Jonathan, go ahead with that. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. It's interesting the contrast. To be carnally minded is eternal torment and torture in flames that never stop. Oh wait, that's not what it says. To be carnally minded is death, the opposite of which is life and peace. Now, why is not the opposite just simply life? Because with death, there's nothing else. Life and peace are the rewards of God. That's the, that's the contrast. God is, is, had a plan from the very start to give his human race something good, something valuable to work with, and something valuable to dwell on. And as, as we wrap up our time here, uh, Isaiah 11, verse 9, says to us that they will not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Folks, here's the key. The key is that in the Bible, the teaching of hell, hell does exist, and we already said that, but we have to put it in its proper context with its proper understanding Otherwise, we are going down some rabbit hole that is created by the minds of men. Let's not go there. Let's go to where the scriptures tell us where to go. Hell, the, the hell of the scriptures is death. Second death is final destruction. It's simple. It's scriptural. And we hope you've gained something from it. Julie and Jonathan, both thank you for both being with us tonight. Thank you, Rick. And uh, folks, look. Um, Make sure that you understand the importance of knowing the scriptures. Just know the scriptures. Think about it. Folks, we want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Coming up next week, do we really have freedom of choice? That's coming next week. We'll talk to you then. 